appreciate that you stand with me if you're able. This comes from Exodus chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 6. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up? When the Lord saw that Moses, that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your goodness and for your mercy. We ask that as we do speak these words and reflect and center our hearts and our minds around this text and we move to the table uh, that you would be present among us, that you would do something here with these words and with this time and with this moment, and that somehow you would change us. Uh, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come as you promised where we gather together and that you would convict and consecrate our hearts for your goodwill in your service. We love you, we honor you, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Have a seat. Okay, so we're in this season of epiphany, uh, or some things the way you may see it is uh, the season after Epiphany is the way some people may reference it. It's the second Sunday after Epiphany. Kyle preached like the quintessential Epiphany passage last week where we talk about the wise men or the magi coming to find the Lord. Uh, if you're a good Christian, you know, you don't put the wise men at the manger in December. You hide them somewhere, or play a little game with your kids. You can hide the, the wise men around the house as they journey towards the manger and you wait 12 13 days, right, until they actually make it there, because we know that Jesus probably would have been closer to two, and they wouldn't have been at the manger at the very beginning, despite what all the cartoons and the manger sets want to convince us of. So I always say, you got you to scoot them off to the side at minimum, you know, you got to kind of leave them over there. So this moment is what we call epiphany, though, it's this, it's this way we celebrate and recognize the realities, the revelation that Jesus has come, and he's not only come to be on earth and to save the people of God, but he's come to expand and to open it up for Gentiles and for everyone. And so in this season, for the next few weeks as we journey towards Lent together, we're taking this moment and this time to kind of reflect with each other as a community of what this means for us, the realities of Christ's incarnation in the way it reveals itself to us anew and afresh again and again. And just in the way that we talked about with the manger and with the birth of Jesus throughout Advent and on Christmas morning and through the Christmas season, we talked about how like, there's this way in which the, the birth is kind of you know disruptive. The very first sermon I preached uh, during Advent, we talked about how there's a way in which if you've ever been like front row or experienced it for yourself of what it means to be pregnant, it is a glorious, mysterious, wonderful, like, miraculous thing. I mean, it is awe-inspiring, and it is confounding at the same time. Like, when you sit front row and watch it happen, or for those of you that have experienced it yourself, you know what I'm talking about. Many of you, some of you in this very moment, 
would not probably describe the first few weeks of this revelation as glorious and wonderful and miraculous and mysterious. It's just mostly painful and nauseating and frustrating, and your body literally turns against itself. I'll never my wife loves coffee. Anna loves coffee. And like the smell of black coffee made her gag. And I'm like, oh, this is real. Like this is not, like this is strange. Because like that woman would like put coffee in an IV bag and just like, you know, and just with her all the time. She loves it. She couldn't drink it. That's not glorious and wonderful. That's disruptive. And yet simultaneously, somehow within her, like it was all worth it, right? Like she never questioned it. And she was very, very aware constantly of this thing that was happening within her. And yet she held it with like just this wonder and this awe and she cherished it. And yet it was painful and disruptive and it was very kind of ordinary and very human. It doesn't feel glorious and wonderful, right? And so this is what Epiphany continues to do. If that's true of this very moment where we have Jesus come to earth in baby form and Mary being like, this is the Messiah and yet like I can't, you know, ride on a donkey without getting seasick or car sick, right? Like, I'm sure she got very nauseous in those moments. Like, this is what epiphany does. It disrupts. It disorients. It, it, it's not always really all that convenient when the Lord kind of finds you in these places. And this is where we want to sit for a little bit, is what does that mean for us today? Kyle did a really good job with this, of making that connection as he went and talked about the Magi and the wise men. And he talked about last week how, like, that would not have been, like, the type of people that you would have expected to show up to be around your baby. Like, as a good Jew, these men showing up with gifts, you, like, you would have been very uncomfortable. Not to mention just the weirdness that it is that some people would randomly show up at your door with gifts for your baby that you've never met. You'd be like... You know, I mean, post-COVID, we, we would definitely Clorox those things before we let anybody touch it, right? Like, oh, that was enough of a habit for six weeks that we would just be like, yeah, let's just, like, disinfect this real quick, you know, maybe check it. 90s kids, your parents would have told you, like, to make sure there's no razor blades in that candy because it was Halloween candy, possibly. Because this is the type of people that would have been doing this, these magi. These would have been people that there would have been suspect, you know? Like, you, you can't just, like, accept it. And yet they do, and, and this is like the revelation of God. And so this is what epiphany is. It's disruptive. It's out of the ordinary. And yet it's very, very ordinary all at the same time. And so as we continue in this, what I want to encourage you is that as you are in your comings and your goings, as you're in your ordinary life, in, in January and February, I feel like get very ordinary very quick for a lot of us. You settle into to patterns and to rhythms very quickly. Part of it is that you only have about eight hours of daylight, and so you just don't know really what to do with yourself. It's not as much fun. You spend all your money. And, and so January and February, you kind of hunker down. You settle. It's very ordinary. And what we want to say as a church is that as you, you set those goals and, and you already, like there's one goal I have that I've been trying to do since the first, that it's, I was like, it, tomorrow's the 15th, and I still have not even put pen to paper on this thing yet. Like, I gotta, I gotta get with it, you know? Like, you, you, you begin to accept this. And what we want to say as a community, as a people, is that it's in those moments that Christ wants to reveal himself to you. In your comings and your goings. And kind of the frustrations, the shames, the difficulties of life. And it is there that Christ longs to come and to reveal himself near to you. That he's in that space. 
that he's not just in the carols and in the perfect Christmas cards and all of those things that we know that that's not the way life is supposed to be, but he's in the January, the end of January, the middle of February, when here in Birmingham it's going to rain for like five, six days straight, never get above 45 degrees and never get cold enough to snow. Never understood why everybody from the South hated winter until I spent one winter in the South. I was like, yeah, this is terrible. Like this, this is awful. Like, just be cold or be warm. Like, pick one. Like, this in-between, spitting it out of our mouths, right? So, we get there, and it's painful. And yet, Christ is there. And this is a celebration season for the church. It's not the full-on, you know, feasting season. But this is supposed to be a season in which there's kind of some excitement. January and February doesn't feel like that. Because what we are saying is that it's in the ordinary, the regular the kind of mundane, the frustrating, that there in those moments, Christ longs to reveal himself to you, that he longs to be near to you, to show you something, to open up new ways and new paths, even though it feels like maybe you didn't do enough. And he's kind of going, yeah, you never will. Let me do it. And this is what we see in this passage with Moses. So some context. Moses is in Midian. Midian is not where, uh, you know, you would necessarily think of Jewish people being, but that's fine. And Moses is with his father-in-law, and he's working for him. I don't know if any of you have ever worked for your in-laws. I have not, uh, but I know people that have. It's probably an awkward situation for a lot of people. Fellows in the room might feel that pain a little bit differently. I don't know. Maybe it's up to you. But I know these situations. Like, this isn't the dream. I can probably tell you that much. He's definitely, you know, living, have you ever asked, my, my dad used to say this, I'd say, oh, I live in the dream, and he'd say, somebody's dream. Like, Moses is not living his dream. He's not actualizing himself, you know, he's not, like, manifesting his destiny here. In fact, he, he's in Midian because he, he kind of messed things up. He had a pretty good life. He was in Pharaoh's house. He was in the royal, kind of, like, in, inside he was hooked up. He had access to wealth, to resources. And then he goes and he, and he does some things that forces him to have to flee and to run away. When, when you read somewhere that you're a shepherd of someone else's flock, uh, subcontext, things have not worked out well for you in this time and in this era. Like if you have your own flock, things are good. Somebody else's flock and you're doing the dirty work, not, not so good. Things haven't gone exactly the way you think that they should have gone. And I want us to kind of focus on that in a, for a minute on this context, because I think we have a temptation to start to talk about the wilderness and isolation and this thing, especially in our modern, and I am all for this, don't get me wrong, like I'm here for mindfulness and silence and meditation and like grounding and these things. Like I think there's a way in which the Lord meets us there, and it's really beautiful, and these practices are great, especially if you struggle with anger and anxiety and different things like you know, maybe somebody in this room might. But there's this way in which I think that we can kind of glorify these things, silence and solitude. We can you know, sign up to go to the, the monastery or, or the, the retreat, and we can sit quietly in the woods and reflect and expect the Holy Spirit to speak to us. And we're like, yeah, that'll be nice. You know, it'll be so, so peaceful. We'll bring our, our Wendell Berry poems with us and our black coffee and, you know, pour it and just sit and reflect. And yet, when most of the people are in silence and solitude in the wilderness in the Bible, it's not quite so beautiful. They're there because they've been forced there. 
They're there because they, they are, something has happened, and they're kind of there by necessity. And I don't think that they're really enjoying the silence and the solitude all that much. I don't think it is a holy moment for them. Much in the way that I spent too much time talking about pregnancy at the beginning for someone that's never actually given birth. There's a way in which it is a beautiful thing, but when you're experiencing it, it's difficult. It's hard. And you can kind of see that after the fact, right? But like when you're in it, like it's just kind of miserable and it sucks. And I don't think that this is the, the, all that different from what Moses is probably feeling here. He's in his comings and he's going, he's just doing his job in Exodus 3. For his father-in-law, shepherding sheep out in the wilderness, sleeping out there, leading them up mountains, defending them, keeping them alive, you know, sacrificing himself for these things. He, he, he's just doing the thing that he's supposed to do. He's just caring for the things in front of him. And he's doing this, I would imagine, with a good amount of shame and frustration. Maybe not. Uh, we'll call it holy conjecture and just run with it. But I would think that after the problems that he had and where he had come from, there, there had to be moments when he was out in the field, sleeping in the cold, in the wilderness, with somebody else's sheep, that he had to think to himself, how did I get here? What happened? I had it set up. I was in. I had a cush life. Where did it all go? And he had to blame himself because it was his kind of rashness, his inability to regulate. He should have used some of those grounding techniques. And in that moment, he acts, and it does something, and it, and it forces him into a place that he never imagined that he would have to go. And he's there in the wilderness, doing his thing, just kind of going about his life. And then this thing happens. There's this burning bush. Now, let me say something real quick about that, just the wilderness, and before we move to the burning bush and talk a little bit more about the context of it. I don't want to poo-poo on silence and solitude. I think they are very good practices. And here's why I want to say that, is that I think that they are meant to be exactly that. They are meant to be practices. They are meant to be this thing that we willingly and actively participate in and put ourselves in so that we can learn what it is like to hear from the Lord when we are in isolation, when we are all by ourselves, while things are good. This is like number one thing in uh, parenting when they're trying to help you teach you how to teach your kids how to regulate. Is they say all the time, like, you can't start to, like, implement regulation techniques once the child has become dysregulated. Because we all know the experience of what it's like for someone to yell at you when you are upset and be like, why are you so upset? You just need to calm down. And you're like, you need to calm down. Gotcha. So, like, <laughs> it doesn't work. It doesn't work once you are mad. So what everybody says, like they're like, what you have to do with your children when you're trying to teach them to calm down, if you want to teach them how to breathe, if you want to teach them how to, you know, do these different things, you have to do it when they're already regulated, when things are good, when things are calm, you practice it in the car. Same thing goes for adults. If you struggle with this, if you're like, yeah, everybody tells me to breathe when I'm mad, but once I'm mad, I'm not thinking about breathing. Well, what they say is like, you need to work on breathing techniques in the morning, right? When you wake up or, or like as you're driving your car, work on these things to, to, to learn how to focus on this. So that's what silence and solitude is meant to be. The Lord meets you there. It's like, it's a practice. You go into silence. You spend some time in the quiet with no phone, all this stuff, so that you can learn to kind of like be aware and to hear from the Lord. Such that when the time comes and you are alone and you are isolated and things are really difficult, 
the default can be to look for the Lord in those spaces. Not to like all of a sudden be like, well, now here it is, like I'm going to do it. Or, or not that it's going to all be magical when you do these things on your own. So that was a practical aside. Moving on, the burning bush. So he's out in the wilderness. He's doing his thing. We got the context. He's probably not super happy. And he's walking and he sees a bush that is on fire. You know Moses is a boy because he goes and immediately inspects that fire and starts messing with it. Like, it's just, you know, girls would maybe, my wife at least, would have been like, why are you going near the burning bush? And I'm like, well, I got to see if I can put my hand in it. It's not burning anything up. Like, what, can I do the same thing? So he goes and he explores the fire. Now, here's something that's key to this part, is that you need to understand in that moment that to do that, okay, so this would have been a bush in the wilderness, uh, the same Hebrew word for bush and for tree gets used throughout most of the Old Testament, and it's etz, E-T-Z, etz. Now, what's interesting is that the word here actually isn't etz. It's only used one time, and it's Sinai. Say it really fast. Sinai, okay? So this bush, the Hebrew word that they're using is Sinai, and it's this bush that is on fire. Now, but what we do know is that that's to start to... We're going to come back to that. But it would have been small. And he's in the wilderness. And there would have been lots of them. And they would have been off in the way. And I'm sure you would notice some fire. But there is an awareness, an attunement that has to be happening there in that moment. He's looking for something. Even though he's in the ordinary and the regular. He doesn't assume that just because he's out in the wilderness that nothing like miraculous or mysterious can happen. And I think that we can make that assumption because in the text, the author wants to make it very clear that he doesn't just like stumble upon it. He is on a path and it says that he sees and he notices, right? And that he has to turn and go look at it. He has to go from the path that he is on and he has to be aware of something that is happening outside of the path and the direction he is heading. And he has to turn himself to it and he has to go off the path to go and be in front of this bush. There's action, there's movement that takes place here where he has to do something different than what he was already doing and he has to have an awareness and this, like, this perception of what is going on and what is happening. And I think to be eager to go to move towards that and the way that he notices things, I think it is the author's way of saying that though he was out in the middle of nowhere, though he was not exactly where he wanted to be and life wasn't going the way that he thought it should go, there was still something deep within Moses that was drawn towards the divine, the holy, the transcendent. And so he sees the bush, and he walks over to it, and then it says that the angel of the Lord had appeared in the bush. And the angel of the Lord is in the fire, and, and the bush isn't burning up, but it's on fire. And then it says that Yahweh saw him, okay? And then it says that God spoke to him once he turned. So Moses sees the fire. Then he realizes that the angel of the Lord is in the fire. And then Yahweh, seeing that Moses sees him, is now going to say something to him. And so God speaks. So you should ask yourself in this moment, if you are a diligent reader, is it the angel of the Lord? Is it Yahweh? Or is it Elohim? The answer is yes. This is important for us. Because what we begin to see here is a foreshadowing of what is to come and a little bit of an insight of what has come. So, so the angel of the Lord is going to be a very important image and picture for the Hebrew people and through the Old Testament. Because it is this way in which it is God, but it's not God. It's distinct and separate. 
and really what the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is going to become, and it oftentimes shows up in flames, because this angel of the Lord that he sees in the burning bush is going to be the same thing that he sees in the fire that leads the people through the wilderness by day and by night, and it's going to be the same thing he sees when the fire falls from heaven when they're back to where? Sinai. And that fire is going to fall, and he's going to see the angel of the Lord in it. It's going to be the same angel of the Lord that is going to be seen in the fire when Solomon finally gets the temple finished and complete, and they make the first sacrifice, and fire falls. It's the fire that consumes the tabernacle that they set up and tear down, and that is in the Holy of Holies. It's the same fire that Ezekiel is going to see when he sees the chariot of God, which the Bible project calls the, God, the fire Godmobile, and I love that. It's amazing. It, this chariot that he sees that is fiery and of flames. It's the same angel of the Lord and the fire that Daniel is going to see. And always it is this representation of God's presence, holy, pure, coming and in invading the space that we find ourselves in. Disrupting things, causing fear and yet awe and wonder. Being two things at once. Being the Lord himself and yet, or Yahweh himself and then also something else. Being something different. And taking on a different form. This is much of where we can start to talk about how we see things like the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, even though it's never mentioned. As New Testament Christians, believers, people will say, well, the, old, the Holy Spirit's not even in the Old Testament. Well, right, but it is. So read it, look at it, and see these things. This is what's happening here. And this becomes ultimately what Jesus is going to be. This thing that is God's tabernacled presence the holy of holies, this flame that comes, that, that delineates holy ground and sacred ground from common and mundane ground. It's going to be Jesus. He's going to come and he's going to be the tabernacle that dwells among us in the holy of holies. Now, here's what's important. is in Exodus, you have this scene. Moses does the thing, he goes to the bush. God speaks to him, interrupts him. Messes, messes up his whole day, his whole life, because his whole life is going to change in a totally different direction. And we're not even going to get into that because we did a series on Exodus in, in two summers ago. But what we see here in this moment is, is what's going to end up happening in Exodus, at the very end of Exodus, when the fire falls and they're back at Mount Sinai, which is this bush, and beautiful language and imagery that's happening there. And the reality is, is this really commonplace bush in this really commonplace place on the mountain in the wilderness where nobody else is, that's really not all that great because horrible means dry. So if you're a shepherd, again, things haven't worked out well if you're in a dry place. It's not good. But that's where they are. And something happens. And it's a foreshadowing and also a retelling and a commentary of what has happened and what is going to happen. Just as it is with Moses, that he is in this ordinary place in an ordinary time, doing ordinary things, just working, Something interrupts and disrupts. And what's beautiful is that the space becomes holy. It becomes sacred. And the angel of the Lord looks at Moses and says, don't come any closer. Take your shoes off. You're on holy ground now. And you're going to bring your people back to here. And what is meant to be in that moment, if you continue to read in Exodus 3, it is meant that everyone is supposed to come and experience that holy ground together. And if you were here for our series, what you know is that the people go, yeah, not for us. You do it. You go do it. We'll just stay down here. But God always intended that everyone would come into that holy space and into that holy ground. The language that gets used here and the different ways that we're being told the story in the narrative of Exodus, 
what we see is, is what is actually happening is this little snippet in Exodus 3 is supposed to immediately trigger ideas of the tree of life and the tree of good and evil in the garden. And we're supposed to immediately have garden imagery in our mind. We're back into Genesis 1 and 2 right away. And we know that because of where Exodus ends. And Exodus, Exodus is going to actually merge this burning bush and this garden imagery together into one. And it's going to be a central theme throughout the Old Testament all the way right up into Revelation 22. Where we're going to end back into the garden areas. Why does this matter? Because what we believe and what we profess is that Jesus comes and fulfills this. That he is the one that comes and is God's presence here on earth. This is what we celebrate in the incarnation. At Christmas season and in Advent. When we alongside of Isaiah and the prophets pray that God would come and he would rend the heavens. And that he would, he would come and take up space around us. That he would come and he would do something. That he would be this. That he would be the Holy of Holies. Because here's the reality of what happens, right? We know the story if you've been in church for very long. If you haven't, let me give you the quick Reader's Digest version. God creates heaven and earth, intends to dwell and be with his people in this perfect union. In the garden, in Genesis 1 and 2, what it represents is this space where the created and the creator perfectly overlap and interconnect. And it's there at the tree of life that they are meant to experience not just eternal life, but eternal life of a very specific kind, which is a life where they are given to the vocation of being God's representation on earth, of ruling and reigning alongside of God. It's not just immortality that they're concerned with at the tree of life, but it's actually this access and this ability to be one with the creator, with Yahweh, and to share in his abundance and his hope and his joy and his goodness and to partake and all that he would have to offer, to, to have life in a different kind of form and in a different kind of way than what we know and experience here and now. And of course, they just screw up immediately. And lest you should judge, just know that you've already screwed up this morning probably, right? Like, you immediately begin to do the same thing. What you begin to do is you begin to define for yourself what is good and what is right, and you make a disconnect. Because this is what humanity does. They choose to say, that sounds good and all, but like, I think I'd rather do it my own way. And so they're, they're banned from the garden. They're not allowed to go back. And they live, as Steinbeck would tell us, a life east of Eden. And yet there's these little moments where the burning fire shows up and the angel of the Lord and the incarnation and there are these little moments where that overlap that was always supposed to exist begins to exist in little spots and little places here and there. And because the people screw up and they refuse to come and be a part of it the way God intended, there's a small season where that fire, that holiness, that overlap exists in one central spot where the people and the nations are supposed to stream to God's desire that they would come and they would be a part of it. And they would find themselves there, worshiping, being near to God. In experiencing this perfect overlap of what is the realities of heaven and the experience of earth and our human condition. But it doesn't always happen like it's supposed to. And so ultimately we believe that Jesus comes and he is that overlap of the Holy of Holies. And his revelation, when we experience it and when we find it in far off beaten places, when we're down and out, when shame and guilt 
and all of these frustrations overwhelm us? When it seems like that there is no answer or that we've really just like let go of everything and there's nothing to be found for us. That it is there in those moments that the garden shows up. That there's an overlap. That there's something about the way that heaven and earth start to combine again. And the Lord reveals himself to us and is available to us. Dallas Willard says this, I'm going to paraphrase it. But he's got this point where he says that people want to get uh, really fixated on this idea that God doesn't live in space, but they'll talk a lot about God living in our hearts. If you've been in my house, I will correct my children, and Anna rolls her eyes at me. Because I'm like, no, 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 Jesus doesn't live in your heart. Jesus lives at the right hand of the Father. The Spirit of God is Jesus' presence to you. And she's like, they're, you know, four, like, just let the theology lesson go. And I'm like, no, 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 but it matters. And here's why it matters, because we believe the incarnation matters. And what we're saying, and what Dallas Willard wants us to grasp, is that Jesus is not confined to here. God is not confined to here. God dwells in the space around us. So wherever we find ourselves, wherever we are going, whatever we are doing, God dwells in and around us. And he intends that in those moments, through his spirit, that he would reveal to us the way in which heaven and earth overlap. And this angel of the Lord, it appears to us in these moments, now through the spirit of Jesus. And we know this to be true because we know Pentecost is true. And so Jesus comes, incarnation, baby, heaven and earth, overlap. He becomes this presence in human form, fully God, yet distinctly different from the Father. And he comes and he dwells, and he is this thing for us. And as he is this thing for us, he lives this life, and he shows us what it means to experience this overlap. And he reveals himself. And this is what John 1 is talking about when it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and he was with God. But he, he wasn't fully God, right? And then he came and he dwelled, he tabernacled on earth among us. Well, John's going to continue his narrative. We're going to go through Jesus' life. We're going to see the death, resurrection of, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And then Jesus is going to resurrect. And then he's going to come and he's going to reveal himself again to the disciples. Again, showing what it means that this overlap can exist. Bearing scars and wounds that haven't fully healed, and yet the pain does not, you know, control him. And yet the scars are there. The wounds are there. This matters. Those wounds, they sit at the right hand of the Father. This is good news for me and you, in our wounding and in our scars. They sit at the right hand of the Father. Because it's redeemed. As heaven and earth overlap. As we're drawn towards it. And so then, in the end of John, John 21, Jesus is going to tell his disciples, listen, He's shown up in some random places. He goes and like eats breakfast with his disciples, which is just amazing. And that's why I know breakfast is God's favorite meal. He, like, it's the first thing he wants to do. He wants to sit down and eat breakfast around a fire on the beach. And he says, hey, like, let's, let's share some fish. He, he walks with them to places. He, he does really normal things where they think that all is lost and all is gone. And, and they're lamenting what has been ruined. And he just kind of shows up in those spaces. He says, no, 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 I'm right here. And now, because of what has happened, I can be everywhere with you at all times. And he tells his disciples, he says, listen, you guys wait. I know you're fearful, I know you're anxious, but, but just go wait. Do this really kind of like, not even ordinary, but kind of out of the ordinary thing. And just go sit. And then something better is going to happen. And they trust and they believe. Even though all seems lost, even though they are now being persecuted and chased, they go, they sit, they wait. And what comes? Fire. The spirit falls, tongues of fire. This imagery is the angel of the Lord imagery. 
like it, it, you should just see it come full through. So that means then, as Christ is revealed to me and to you, what begins to happen is this epiphany as we see Christ for who he is, and he is revealed to us in the ordinary, in the mundane, in the anxious. What he does is in that moment, he takes the things that are very ordinary and common, and he says, these things are now holy ground. And he starts doling out his spirit to people, and it just falls, goes. And now the fire that marks these people is imagery to say, these people are now holy ground. This is where the holy of holies resides. Paul, who actually wrote before Luke, is going to use similar imagery to say that you are the temple. You are where the overlap happens. And where there's shame, heartache, frustration, just like it was with Moses. In that moment where he can't have thought that life was going exactly the way that he thought it should. When he was frustrated, what God says to him is, I see your past and that's fine. I'm going to do something with you anyways. I will reveal myself to you. Now, we're not all Moses. We're not all the chosen ones, as much as I would like to be and think that I am when I read every book and movie that I watch. You know, it's only the main character that I'll identify with. But that's not my call. That's Jesus' call, right? Jesus has to be the main character of our story. But here's the thing with Moses. This is what I love. When Moses, if you keep reading in Exodus 3, he says, uh, what, what am I supposed to do? Like, I can't do it. God doesn't come in and give him a pep talk like I would like to get a pep talk or like, uh, you know, AT from Peloton gives me a pep talk when I'm in the middle of my workout. He doesn't come and say, you're the best, you're the greatest, you can do it. If you just visualize, it'll happen. He says, yeah, 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 I know. You're going to mess up a lot, but I won't. I will be with you. And I will use you despite your brokenness, despite your flaws, despite your failures. To reference Kyle's sermon again one more time, he talked about this last week, like when we make goals, that as you center yourself around what it means to become more like Christ, when you, when you fall short of your resolutions, which I think it's perfectly fine to make resolutions, and if the naysayers want to like make fun of you, be like, well, whatever, I'm going to do it anyways. So like, it's fine to make resolutions, as long as you understand that those resolutions and those goals and those things that you are striving for are making you more like Christ. And as long as you understand that when you succeed, it is the Spirit of God that has carried you there and your good work, and you should applaud yourself. That's totally fine to say, yes, I worked really hard on these things. But also to understand that when you fail, not if, but when you fail to achieve the things that you think that you achieved, you do not have to walk with that failure and carry it yourself because Christ carries it for you. And he says, it's fine because I don't fail. And there's joy in that. So we continue. This is what happens to Moses. This is what happens to the disciples. And this is what is intended to happen to you and I. We're meant to carry this hope, to, to embody this thing, this holy of holies, and to be this. And we're not this perfectly, and we're not this all the time. But in those spaces where it seems kind of impossible, out of the ordinary, such as it was with Jesus' birth, we continue today in the 21st century carrying this forward. Continuing as the Spirit of God lives and reigns within us and around us in this space, the incarnation continues to matter. That God was here, in our space, in our form, that he took up residence near us, and he continues to take up residence near us. And it's redeemed, and there is this overlap. And what my desire and my hope and something that I pray for my family and my household in this community and for the classrooms that you work in, and the offices that you, you know, hold and, and go to every day, and in the classrooms that you attend and study and learn, 
that in those spaces, that overlap, that you would carry that with you. And that what begins to happen, and what God intends to happen, is that through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, his ascension, and the gift of his spirit, that Eden, that day of the Lord, that burning, what it does is we carry it with us, and we become little pockets, little Edens everywhere. This is what we're supposed to be. And this is what the incarnation and the epiphany mean for us. That we come near to God and that he comes near to us and he takes up space near to us. But he's not us. He's different. He's separate. And yet united. Just like the Godhead. And this is our gift. And this is our call. And this makes then, as the band comes back up and we prepare our time for communion, what this does and what this makes is, is this really beautiful thing that can happen I'm borrowing from the Bible Project again here in Tim Mackey. There's this great line that he says that, that it is not about achieving the eternal life, as I said earlier, but it is more about this vocation, that as we begin to carry this thing, what it means to be given to and to reveal and to see Christ as Messiah, Lord and King and ruler of all, what it means is that we now have the opportunity and the chance and the gift to share in that original vocational work of ruling and reigning alongside of God. The promise seems to be that if we do so correctly and rightly, there is some form of eternal life in which we confess every Sunday that we will, you know, that Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. And we believe that we will partake in that somehow. It's mysterious. We don't know. There's something there. But we know that that's not all salvation is. It's not just, you know, the cliche youth. It's not just a fire insurance program. But it's this invitation to participate now in the overlap. To participate in the divine and the holy. Even when things are hard and difficult. When life is kind of ordinary and mundane. That's why we gather here and do these things. We come every Sunday and we practice. And we recenter and we restory and we retell what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And we take this and we come and we come to the table again and again every Sunday. So that we can take of the bread and the cup of God's body, Jesus' body, broken for us in our provision. We take of the cup of his blood poured out for the sacrifice and the forgiveness of our sins. And we ingest it. And in somehow, some way, in a mysterious thing that is far beyond my understanding, what we believe is that that is an outward sign. And yet it also is some sort of physical presence of God here among us. That, that this is a way in which we are transformed and changed. And so we come and we receive and we take the bread and we take the cup and we believe that something happens, that we become more like him in these moments and we do it again and again and we come so that then when we are out there doing the thing, playing the game, we have moved beyond the practice and the ritual of it, but we allow that to actually manifest itself in such a way that we are the embodiment of this reality, that we are given then to this like way in which we are little Edens everywhere. And so I want to invite you to come and to take the bread and the cup as the band plays. We'll play a song and after they're done playing it, I'll come back up if you hold on to those elements throughout the song and I'll lead us in the reception together as we take of one bread and one cup as the people of God receiving the gifts of God to allow us to be nourished and forgiven and to be moved and preserved and protected into this very vocation of ruling and reigning alongside of God as we experience the overlap of heaven and earth 
and experience what it means to be his creation in perfect relationship and reunion with him. So come and receive. Amen.